Today we'll continue in a series of uh, the parables of Jesus. Today we're going to look at uh, two parables that are back-to-back. So it's the parables of the lowest seat and the great banquet, uh, both with similar themes. We're going to kind of look at maybe a little more of the context today than we have in the past. We should always set the context for you, but this whole story kind of flows, flows together. It begins in Luke 14. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, it'll be in the screen behind me here. I'm using the NIV, so if you have a different translation that, and the words are different, that is, that is why. Luke 14, starting in verse 1, it says this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from an abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. So the scene is that there's a Sabbath day, which all of you know, the Jewish people, the Sabbath is very important. One of the Ten Commandments was to keep the Sabbath, right, to keep it holy. What had happened in Jesus' time is, is the Pharisees, teachers of the law, the, those who were the most religious, had added to that commandment. So they were so afraid of breaking the commands of God, 613 of them found in the Old Testament, that the Pharisees had actually added what they referred to as offense, offense around the law. So you'd have to essentially get over the fence before you ever even got close to breaking the law. Their hearts were in the right place. The problem with it was is it didn't function very well, right? They were trying to be as holy as possible, trying to, to make sure they kept God's command to the very letter of the law. The problem with it is that leads us to what? It leads us to being judgmental, normally. It leads us to, to being um, people who don't get invited to parties very often. I don't know if you know that or not, right? They're, what happens when you become nothing but a rule follower? We have a term for it, right? It's legalistic. You're so worried about the law, so worried about not breaking the law, that the law becomes, essentially, takes the place of God. And I think you could say with a lot of the Pharisees, not all of them during Jesus' time, but many of the Pharisees, they had forgotten the point of all those laws. Why had they added to the law? Well, they're trying to, 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 to make sure that they don't break God's laws. It's about God. It's always been about God. Problem with it during Jesus' time is they, I think, had forgotten that. And the laws had essentially taken the place of God. So Jesus is testing them as they're trying to test him as well. You see, that it says on the Sabbath day, Jesus eats at a, at a prominent Pharisee's home. He's been, probably, he's been invited there. And look what the end of verse 1 tells us <clears throat> those Pharisees are doing. It says he was being carefully watched. Well, these are the people who are end up crucifying him or having him crucified. They don't have the power to crucify, but they're the ones that are going to end up bringing him to his death. So they're looking for something to catch him doing wrong. Right? That's their goal. They invite him, so they invite him to the, to the house for dinner. It isn't just because they're being friendly and kind and want to welcome him. It's because they're trying to set him up. Have you ever been to a meal or a gathering like this? <clears throat> if you've maybe been invited by someone who isn't your, your biggest fan and you think to yourself, why do they invite me here? We don't normally get along. This is kind of weird, right? It's a setup is what this is. Now, you and I don't have the benefit of being the Son of God, so we don't know that in advance. Jesus does. Jesus has that advantage. And so as you're going to see, like he does throughout the entire New Testament, when tested, Jesus is going to come out flawlessly. And not just that, he gets to teach somebody else a lesson <clears throat> in the midst of it. But remember in this entire story that this is a hostile environment Jesus is in. These aren't his friends. These are people who are trying to, to make him stumble and fall and fail. 
Okay, so he's being watched carefully. Verse 2. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. We don't know the exact condition. Probably taking on a bunch of water. Something's wrong with him where he's, he's swelling in, a, in abnormal ways. So Jesus sees him and thinks to himself, here's a chance. We're going to see where their hearts are, right? So Jesus asks the Pharisees and experts in the law. He sets them up first before they can do something to him. He brings it on them. He goes on the offense, right? Doesn't play defense here. Says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, this is, had been debated during his time and way before Jesus and way after Jesus, by the way, by rabbis. What can we do on the Sabbath? What is considered work, right? The commandment is to not work on the Sabbath. Well, what constitutes work? How do we, how do we define that? And the rabbis would argue, and this rabbi might take a very conservative approach and this one not. So maybe this rabbi will allow you to do more on the Sabbath and this rabbi wouldn't let you do. He said, no, 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 absolutely none of that, right? They had, some rabbis had a certain distance you could travel or couldn't travel, what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And so Jesus essentially stirs up the debate. Is it okay? We see this man in front of us. He's suffering. We can take care of the problem right now. Is that okay? What is, what is he trying to do? He's trying to see where their hearts are. What matters more to you, Pharisees, the law or this man? What comes first? Your rules, your regulations, or human beings? Now, we have to ask the same question when we talk about God's laws. Why does God make law? Why did he do that? For us. For our benefit. God's laws are, come straight and directly from his love for us. God goes, I created you, I made you, I know how it's best for you to live, and so I'm going to help you, I'm going to direct you, I'm going to guide you. Now, I know there's a time in all of our lives where rules aren't that great, right? Generally, it hits us between the ages of 13 to probably early 20s for boys. Girls, you probably get over that a little quicker than you are because you're smarter than us. It's just, that's a fact. But there's a time in our life where rules are difficult for us, right? We push back against rules. So oftentimes, it's when we've hit that adolescence and we're starting to become an adult. We want to be our own individual. And so our, the rules that our parents give us, we don't understand why. You have to be in at this time. Well, why? You can't do this. You can't. Well, why? Right? And we start asking the why. God gives us his rules, the same reason that parents give rules to their kids. Because they love them. I remember I was telling my youth kids uh, when I worked at a church in Fruitland that if their parents didn't discipline them, their parents actually didn't love them. And the looks on their faces were just, what? So your parents discipline you because they love you. No, no, parents don't, we don't like doing that. It's not our most fun thing to do as a parent is discipline your children. We do that because we love you. Give you discipline because we know if you're going to function in life, you have to have it. Have you ever met a 20-year-old who never had discipline as a 2-year-old? Are they fun to be around? No, they're not. 2-year-olds without discipline aren't fun to be around, but when they grow up to be 20, they're really not fun to, to be around, are they? The problem with the Pharisees is they've taken the law and they've magnified it. They've made it larger. And they've added to it. And then they've made it as if God said it, right? And it's like, well, that's not the point. So Jesus asks them, can I do this? Is it okay? And their response is, verse 4, silence. Nothing. Quiet. No response. See, Jesus has gone on the offense and they didn't expect that. They expected to be asking the questions, right? Which is a great reminder for us. When you're in those situations, it's better to be on offense than defense if you're in hostile territory. Nothing. So the Luke tells us in verse 4, taking 
hold of the man. He healed him and sent him on his way. Jesus shows them his power and his might live right there in the moment. And you would think, and there are certain Pharisees that we see in the Bible, you would think that when you saw that and you had questions about the man, that maybe something would happen here. But if you're so hard and you're so stubborn, remember that story about Pharaoh in the book of Exodus whose heart was hardened. These Pharisees, I think, can be described in that same way. Let's see what happens next in the story. You turn to verse 5 and 6. Then Jesus asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? They had nothing to say. Jesus says, Guys, your laws and your regulations, they don't make sense. Because if you, if you had a child or you had a, a, a farm animal that you depended upon and it fell in the well, you're just going to leave it there to die till the next day? No, you're not going to do that. What did Jesus just do? Did he just not just restore life and healing to this man? They've lost the point. So I want to read you out of the book of Deuteronomy. When Moses is giving his last sermon, which his last sermon was essentially a re-giving of the law. So he's giving the law that had happened at Sinai in the book of Exodus. I want to just read you the commandment about the Sabbath day in the book of Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy 5, starting in verse 12. It says this, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to you, or excuse me, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that, you, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. What I believe the Pharisees have forgotten was the point to begin with. God institutes the Sabbath during the giving of the Ten Commandments. The Israelites had just been slaves in Egypt. God frees them through his ten mighty acts, leads them into the wilderness, gives them, there he gives them the law, Tries to give it to them. It's too much for them, right? They can't handle it. They say, God, we can't do this. We'll send Moses up the mountain. You can talk to him and you bring it back down. They were just slaves in, in Egypt. And remind me of what a work schedule of a slave is. Do you get days off and vacation when you're a slave? No. One of the points of the Sabbath to begin with was God was saying, you're a human being, not a human doing that you have to rest. That you are no longer slaves. That you're free. And so the reason, one of the reasons God gives that Sabbath to them is because he's setting an example for them, isn't he? That you have to rest. When God created the world in the book of Genesis, what happens? How many days does he create? For six days he creates, and what's he do on the seventh? He's God. Does he need to rest? No. God doesn't need to rest. He spoke the world into existence. Pretty powerful dude. Why does he take that rest on the seventh day? To be an example for us that you've got to rest. That you can't work, 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 work. Because you're more than what you do. You're more than your work. But you matter to God not just when you produce. You matter to God all the time. And have the Pharisees forgotten the point. 
I think they have. Forgotten the point of the Sabbath to begin with was to remind you that you can rest. That you're a person created in God's image and that you have value and that you matter. And when Jesus presses them on this issue of what comes first, life or the Sabbath, what happens again? Their response in verse 6 is silence. When you're having a debate with, or an argument with someone and they're quiet, that means you're winning, just so you know, in case you weren't aware of that. They're not answering you back. That means you're getting the best of them. Let's see what happens in verses 7, 8, and 9. So when he noticed how the guests had picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So in the ancient world, if you sat by the host, if you sat on his, the host's right hand was the place of greatest honor, the left hand was the second place of honor, and then it went down the table, right? And if you're at the very far end, you're the least important guest. That's just how it worked. Remember, this is a, a culture based on honor and shame, right? And so Jesus is there, invited there just for the Pharisees, and he sees that there's many people who are trying to work their way up towards the host. And so he tells them this parable. Verse 8. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host will invite both of you, or excuse me, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And humiliated, you have to take the least important place. Jesus says, if you go to a wedding feast, don't go up there assuming that you're the most important person to be invited because you're probably not, right? You're probably not. So take the lower seat. Don't take the highest seat because if you take the highest seat, what happens? The host has to come over there. It's an awkward moment, right? The host goes, oh, you're not as important as you think you are. Can you sit back down a few rows? Right? That's awkward for everybody. And you're embarrassed in front of everyone. Have you ever got the, set in the wrong seats when you went to a concert or somewhere? And you, you sat in better seats than maybe you thought you had? And then they have to come. The usher has to come and say, uh, good try. Go back up there. The nose bleeds, right? Like, oh, here we go. And you got to walk. It's walk of shame back up. It's the same idea, right? Don't sit in a seat more. You don't. Jesus is trying to get you the point across. is don't think you're more important than you are. And he's in a room full of people who think they're very important. And so he's going to drive this point home with this parable and the next parable he tells. So he tells them, instead of doing that, instead of taking the highest place, this is what you should do. Verses 10 and 11. When you're invited, take the lowest place. Go to the far end of the table so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. This story, by the way, isn't really about where you sit, is it? It's just an example Jesus uses. I want you to think for a moment what's already happened in the story. Jesus gets invited to a, to a prominent Pharisee's home for dinner, which means in the ancient world you only ate with people who were in your same social class. So likely there's only other prominent Pharisees there with Jesus. And Jesus has already interacted with somebody who he had to heal, who may be possibly, probably wasn't actually invited to the dinner, but saw Jesus walk in and thought to himself, this is my chance. And so there's probably lots of murmuring going on with the Pharisees of why is this other guy here? We don't know him. He doesn't belong here. And Jesus brings them back to earth, doesn't he? Jesus has a great way of doing that, by the way, to all, for all of us. He says, remember when that guy walked in here that needed healed and you all were murmuring to yourselves? 
But why is he here? Well, he's here because he matters to God. So Jesus is trying to get them to understand that, hey, I know you have the fancy robe and the degree and the title, but that doesn't get you very far, does it? You put your pants on one leg at a time just like everybody else. And so be careful thinking of, how, of yourself as more important than you actually are. Because what we've seen so far in the Gospels is that the people who are most attracted to Jesus are the people you probably didn't want to hang around all that often. And the people who were repelled by him carried great titles and great power, but never got it. So Jesus reminded them, hey, whoever exalts themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. God's kingdom is upside down, isn't it, from what we experience here on earth? If you want to be great in the kingdom, Jesus says, you better have been humbled. You better serve. You better give. You better sacrifice. All the things that our culture tells us not to do. Right? We're told, we're taught very, whether it's verbally or not, as when we're very young children, that you are the most important thing. That you are, look out for number one. And God says, nope. That's not true. Look out for everybody else. I've had a chance, uh, a great opportunity to be in the fire service for 10 years. There are some in, in the fire service who have lost the point of it. Uh, classes were constantly taught that you're number one as the firefighter, which is the furthest thing from the truth I've ever heard in my life. It drives me crazy. Because we're not. It's not the point. If you want to be in service to other people, you can't put yourself, I don't care if you're a firefighter, or if you're working at a soup kitchen, or you're, whatever you're doing, if you put yourself as number one, you're never going to serve anybody else. Because your world gets brought down to just you. You know people like this, by the way. They're not fun to be around. Whose world revolves only around themselves. God didn't put us here just for ourselves. He put us here to be of service to others. Jesus set the example, didn't he? Jesus came to this earth in very humble means. We just celebrated Christmas. He didn't come to fanfare. He wasn't born in a palace in a large city. He was born in the middle of nowhere with the smell of manure all around him. First people to come and celebrate him were shepherds. I don't know if you know this, but shepherds weren't exactly celebrated in their culture. They smelled and they had terrible mouths. Think of people who work on an oil refinery, right? Those are shepherds. They're rough around the edges. They say words that make you very uncomfortable. And make jokes that are not very politically correct. They're the first ones to celebrate the king. The guy who thought he was king of the world at that point lived in Rome. And he had everything he ever wanted. He took the titles of Lord and King as well. And yet you don't know his name. But the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was born in Bethlehem, this little village in the middle of nowhere to parents who were nobody. And here you are today. We're celebrating him. So Jesus is trying to get them to understand 
that if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you had better be humble. But Jesus is telling them they should have known all along. It's not brand new. Look at the book of Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7. And the wisdom found in the book of Proverbs says this, Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence. Do not claim a place among his great men. It is better for him to say to you, Come up here, than for him to humiliate you before his nobles. That should sound familiar, doesn't it? What did Jesus just say? It's like it's, it's, like it's been written all along, which I love, because the Pharisees were supposed to be experts in what? In the book. And what does Jesus do? Reminds them of what the book says. He says, if you're supposed to be experts in this, you should probably know it. And so in a very subtle way, Jesus says, are you experts? Do you know what you really think you know or not? Luckily for us, the story doesn't end there. It just keeps getting better. Verses 12, 13, and 14 say this, And Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You're already feeling a little awkward if you're the host because Jesus has reminded everyone to humble themselves rather than to exalt themselves. And then Jesus turns his attention to the host, who <coughs> we know, the Bible tells us, is a prominent Pharisee. And Jesus essentially says, this meal you're having is garbage. I mean, Jesus is not a great dinner guest right now, is he? He says, all, the thing we're doing right now where you invited all your other friends, this is stupid. I mean, that's what he says. He says, when you do something like this, quit inviting these yahoos. Quit inviting these people who are just like you, who think just like you, who act just like you, who agree with you. Stop it. They don't need a dinner. He says, go out and invite people who might actually benefit from this. And maybe you should, maybe you should be talking to. And so the list Jesus gives is who? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. The Pharisees are itching right now. Thinking, um, no. Remember, in the ancient world... Eating a meal with someone meant you thought they were, you were, that you guys were peers. And so for the Pharisee to invite the, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, those who are out begging for money, I mean the Pharisee is taking a huge hit in his ego and his pride and humbling himself and making sure those that are the least among us are being served and cared for. And Jesus again reminding the Pharisees that they've missed the point, haven't they? That if you want to be great in the kingdom, you had better have your hands dirty. Which reminds us that when these people walk into our church, they had better be cared for. Or what's the point? They might smell of booze from the night before and three packs of cigarettes. They might not be dressed like you and I. That's okay. I don't really like wearing this stuff anyways, to be perfectly honest with you. Supposed to res- this is supposed to be worn at funerals and weddings. That's it. It's my own personal feelings, but they're going to come in different, aren't they? They're going to use language that makes you uncomfortable. And I've been in the fire service for 10 years, so there's not a lot of words I haven't heard, so I- I'm-, I'm okay with it. But they're going to use words that you're going to think, oh, we don't do that. They might wear their hat in the church, right? The, the roof won't, it won't cave in, I promise. It'll stand. They don't know the customs. 
And if all we do is when they come and say, hey, take off the hat, and hey, that's my pew, are we really giving them the love that Jesus, you know what I'm saying? You're in my spot, move, and take off your hat, and quit using those words, right? But what does that do? If you put yourself in their shoes, are you coming back? I'm not. So when these people walk into our church, we had better care for them, like Jesus is telling the Pharisees that they ought to care for them. Because these are the people that were constantly around our Savior. They're the the ones who constantly responded to Him. Were these types of people. So the church had better have our arms open wide when they come. Matter of fact, we should actually be going and chasing after them, not just waiting for them to come here. We should be going on offense and saying, hey, you have a problem with this, this, and this? I know somebody who can fix this, this, and this. This is Jesus. Why don't you come to church and learn a little bit about him? He'll change everything for you. So we can't be scared of people who are not like us. The Pharisees are. And Jesus says, quit doing this. Quit having this meal. Let's do something. So he's going to tell a parable to drive this story home. Verse 15, 16, and 17 says this. When one, one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now we're not sure if he's responding positively to Jesus or he's trying to change the subject. I'm not sure, right? One or the other. He's either saying, yeah, Jesus, preach. Or he's saying, let's talk about something else because this is getting awkward. Right? We've all been there. Jesus' reply is this. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, we talked about this with weddings before. You throw a great banquet, you're going to send out a save the date, essentially, is what we would call it, right? You're going to invite everybody to it. Then, when the food's actually ready, you go out and send your servants, okay, everybody come, because it's it's ready to go. So these people have known about the banquet for weeks, if not months, right? Look what they do. So servants have been sent out to invite Everyone to the banquet. It's ready to go. Time to eat. In verse 18, Jesus says this, But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. We'll pause there before we get to the end of the story. First of all, their excuses are terrible. First one's excuse is, I just bought a piece of ground and you go see it. Well, who buys property without seeing it, right? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Second one's the same thing, right? Oh, I just bought five o- yoke of ox and I gotta go try them out. Who doesn't try out? O- you buy a car without taking it for a spin first? That's another dumb excuse, right? The third one is, I just got married. We just got married. That means you can't go places? What does that mean, right? These are terrible excuses because excuses are always... Real terrible. We've all used them, right? You just, don't, just say, I don't want to go. That's the truth, right? You're having a banquet. I thought about it. I don't really like you that much. I don't want to go. I mean, that's, the tr- that's what they should just say. Just be honest. They come up with all these excuses. If they just would have said, hey, I don't want to go, the guy would okay, I get it. So the servant comes back and tells the, the master. He gets angry. Well, yeah, he's made all this food. They all said they were going to come, and now they're not coming. So what's he do? He thinks, well, I'm not going to let this food go to waste. This goes out. The people Jesus just mentioned, right? 
It says, well, go in the town, alley, wherever you find them, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now that list should sound familiar. Jesus just told the Pharisee to do what? Instead of inviting these people to your dinners all the time, invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Invite them. Sir, the servant said in verse 22, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. And the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, this has nothing to do with food, guys. The story isn't about a banquet. It's a parable. It's teaching a lesson, right? Who are the characters of this parable? There's the master. Who is? God. There are the invited guests. Who are? The Pharisees, the religious leaders of their day, right? And there are those that are the, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. They represent themselves. In the movie credits, it just says, played by themselves. The banquet is heaven. It's life. Real life. Eternal life. And the story ends with those who should have been at the banquet all along out of the banquet. Their invitation has been rescinded. Don't come anymore you're not welcome. Now, if you've been a Christian for very long, this should hit you right between the eyes. It does me. Are God's priorities my priorities? Is what matters to God what matters to me? Because everybody matters to God. Some of those people are very difficult to be around. I get it. It's hard, but that doesn't mean they don't matter anymore. See, the Pharisees had gotten really good at uh, the holy huddle, which we can get very good at too if we're not careful, of I like these people that come to my church and so I don't really want anybody else to come, which is the most anti-kingdom thing I think I've ever heard in my entire life. Jesus wants no part of that. Leave him out of that. If that's the way you want to be, take his name off the door. He doesn't want to be a part of that. If sinners aren't welcome in the church, where are they welcome? Spoiler alert, room full of sinners right now, just in case you didn't know that. If you didn't know that, we can have this conversation afterwards. I'll I'll explain the whole thing to you, right? If you didn't know that, but we're all in the boat and she's sinking. The problem with the Pharisees is they had forgotten that. In their pursuit of righteousness, of their own personal righteousness, they forgot what matters most to God, and that's people. The order of things that matter to God. One, people. Two, things. Summarized it right there. People come first to God. And so they had better come first to us. Isn't that what the parable is about? Those who thought for sure they were in this entire time have been out. And those who didn't think they had a fighting chance are all of a sudden back in. And Jesus' ministry shows us this, doesn't it? You read the Gospels, what do you see? 
The people who should be getting it, who should be understanding it, who should be on board, aren't. And the people who should have no chance, who have been soiled by life time and time again, who have made all kinds of terrible choices, are flocking to this Jesus one after another. Why? Because in him we find love and mercy and grace. And the Pharisees, what do we, what do we get? Judgmental glances looking down our noses. Brothers and sisters, may we never, ever fall into the trap of thinking we, God somehow owes us something. That we've somehow earned it. Because grace is what? It's unearned. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. Undeserved, unearned kindness is what grace is. And the only way you and I are getting anywhere is because of God's immense grace. That's it. I don't care how many weekends your rear end is in these pews, that's never going to get you to heaven. It's not. Being a pastor isn't going to do it. It's accepting every single day God's immense grace. Of saying, God, it's all you and none of me. Let me get out of your way, God, because it's you. the point. That's why we come. That's why we keep coming. Is to just show him, hey God, really appreciate all you've done for us. And so you and I can bond together, support each other, get our batteries recharged and go out for another week of getting beat up by the world. That's why we're here. May it always be why we're here. It's for him. Always has been and always will be. Let's pray, our Father in heaven, we are, are so very thankful that you are a God of grace, that you love us more than we will ever be able to understand or comprehend, and that you love every single person the same with everything you have. And so God, help us when we interact with people who aren't like us, who are, who are different from us, that, that maybe have made different choices than we have or been down different paths, God. Remind us that we are no better. That we are all sinners saved by your wonderful grace. That's how we will always be. None of us in this room have ever been or will ever be perfect, God. Yet you love us just the same. And we are so, so glad you do. God, help us as we interact with people this week. We go back into our community. We go to work. We go to the ball game. We go to the grocery store, to the restaurant. Help us be people of, of your kingdom, people full of grace, love, and mercy, and compassion. It's not always easy, God, but we know with your spirit we can do it. And we thank you for your son Jesus who gives us the perfect example of what it meant to live a life of great purpose and a a life full of love and grace. God, why in this parable we see him speaking very hard words, very difficult words. They are the truth. Give us the ability to speak that truth as well in love. And we thank you and we love you and pray us in the powerful and holy name of your son Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.